in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Give your attention to the reading of the Word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Heavenly Father, bless your understanding, the reading and the application of your holy, infallible, inerrant word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon's life began so well. The circumstances of his parents were not the best when he was born. His mother was Bathsheba, you remember. His um, sibling died at birth and then the Lord blessed and was merciful and along came Solomon. And it was not long after that as a young man, a very young man, perhaps even in his teen years, that he inherited the kingdom. And in his young years, he was, he was given the grace and the wisdom to ask for the right thing. The Lord asked, told him, uh, to ask for whatever he wanted to ask, and he didn't ask for riches or might or power, but he asked for wisdom. And the Lord said to Solomon, because you've not asked for all these material things, but asked for wisdom, we're going to give you wisdom, but then I'm going to give you all those other things as well. Solomon uh, built the temple that his father could not build, came one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent edifice dedicated to the glory of God that the, that the people of the world would string to in order to worship there. Solomon was able, by the grace of God, to advance the borders of Israel beyond any 
any length that they had ever advanced before. Truly an amazing, amazing uh, time. And he did it mostly peacefully. And as we learn later on, he did it in such a way, though, that compromised himself spiritually. He did it by marrying into those surrounding nations. And adopting the gods of his foreign wives, which led to his demise spiritually. And when you read the sad account of his life at the end in 1 Kings 11, if you read carefully that account of his life, you wonder, this man who wrote so much of the Old Testament, so many of the poetic books, was he even a believer? Is the what I look at it, the way I look at it. Until you understand that Ecclesiastes is his message of repentance. By biblical terms, when he writes this, he's not an old man. We don't know the exact chronology of his death, age. He's certainly less than 70 years old. But he his wantonness took a toll on him, to say the least. And so you can just hear the notes of cynicism and bitterness and and pain that, that, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write as you read these words. And here in these verses, these seven verses that I've read, you have a picture of what repentance looks like when you come to worship. Giving the advice from the Holy Spirit through Solomon's experience, we have these words, guard your step when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. That's better than offering the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. The temple was the place that the people of God worshipped. At least twice a year, the devout Jews expected to make the pilgrimage from wherever they lived in the borders of Israel to the temple. And it was the sacrifices at the Passover and, and, and uh, the Day of Atonement that's just passed in the Jewish calendar were absolutely essential to the life. And then on these two occasions at least, the, the Jews would go and worship. And Solomon says, when you go to that place, be careful to listen to the Word of God as it is read, as it is sung, as it is preached. And that same advice is given today to God's people in the temple. And that is not on the temple mound in Jerusalem. There's nothing there but a mosque. In fact, this, this latest war is named for that mosque, I noticed. 
The people perpetrating this war against Israel have named their war after the mosque on the Temple Mount. I found that incredibly interesting from another uh, a number of levels. And who knows how all that is going to play out. But what we should be concerned about is our gathering in the temple of God here at this moment. I want to read to you several verses from the New Testament. I want to read to you first from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, first letter, chapter 3, verse 16, speaking to a local congregation. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In Ephesians, his epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, talking about the whole church, and talking about the reconciliation of of those of national Israel and those outside of Israel into one body of believers. Those who were once strangers to the commonwealth of Israel through the blood of Christ have been brought into that commonwealth of Israel. That's what chapter 2 is all about. That reconciling work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 of chapter 2. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that language. And what are you built on? You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of God into, into whom you are being dwell, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 talking about Christ the living stone You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. It's the same language of the Old Testament of Ecclesiastes 5. A house. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. What wonderful promises when we get an understanding of how precious the gathering of the saints are, whether it's a small group or whether it's a larger group or the great congregations that some of you have worshipped in, whatever the place or the great throng of heaven that Peter is pointing to that we will one day be in, we need to understand we are God's temple. And when we draw near to that place, we are to be careful that we don't at offer the sacrifice of fools. What is, what is the sacrifice of a fool? A 
the sacrifice of a fool is unholy worship. It's the sacrifice of Samuel's wicked sons who profaned the, temp the tabernacle of God by their perversion. And God took them out of this world. It's the sacrifice of, of the first king of Israel, Saul, who was told by God not to, have, to totally uh, wipe out the Amalekites. And he refused to, to, uh, to do that because there were so many sheep and so many lambs and so much wealth in which he was to totally destroy with the people of the Amalekites. And he didn't do it. And Samuel has to confront him. What, why have you done this? What, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear? What have you done? Saul and Samuel tells him to obey is better than to sacrifice. In the New Testament, to hear, what does it mean to draw near, to listen? It means to hear. How do, we, how do we listen to the Word of God when it's expounded? The Apostle Paul said how we listen is essential to our salvation in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the preaching of the Word of God, the spoken Word of God. That's how important what we do when we gather to worship God is. And we're to be careful. So often our worship can just de de degenerate into uh, just, you know, you, know, you know, we preachers are often tempted to be stand-up comedians. But that's not our, not our job. Yes, humor is important. It's, it's wonderful to be winsome and, and in much as it is connected to the Word of God. But we're not entertainers. We are to be faithful ministers of the Word of God. Watch your words. The second verse of this text. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. So how are we to think? How are we to pray? How are we to act? Well, the Bible is a book about that. I, I, I love our wonderful new Psalter, um, the, the, the uh, hymns that are, are the classic hymns that are in it and some of the newer hymns that are wonderful. We do some of those occasionally. But the Psalms, they're all 150 Psalms. Some of the Psalms that we sing have three or four or five different tunes to them or versions. Singing the Scriptures. How do we, how do we keep from rash words? We're to watch our words. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount knew of the tendency of religious people to think by 
performing multitudes of, of, of rote prayers and this sort of thing uh, could somehow appease God. I mean, there are all kinds of religions that do this. They, the, uh, some of the Buddhist sects have prayer wheels and, and prayer wind chimes and things, and they think that they are constantly floating prayers out. And by somehow doing these things that, that they'll get God's attention if you do them loudly and long enough. And what this passage is telling us, what Solomon is telling us in this passage is it's not the multitude of words, it's the attitude of the heart that is important. Jesus said when you pray in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be like the Gentiles who think they're going to be heard for all of the words they're saying. And then he proceeded to teach us a model prayer. You don't know, if you wonder how to pray or you're struggling with your prayer life, hopefully you've memorized the Lord's Prayer. We, we use it in our worship every Sunday. Why, why, why do you do that? You might ask. I, I was reading on this this week, and I realized there's some, some people who think the Lord's Prayer is for another age and for another time, and they don't even use it. Really? Where do you get such nonsense? Our Lord Jesus said, when you pray, and he said it plurally, when you all pray, it's not singular, when you pray together, pray like this. And he gave us a model prayer. Now I agree that you can just spew off those words and not hear a single one of them like my high school football team did when I was a young man. We'd, we'd get in the huddle and we'd say the Lord's Prayer. And I don't remember one thing about it other than it was we were just doing that. And that's a, that's a wrong use of it. If you come to worship, you just run through that prayer without thinking of it. That's again, that's not offering worship to God. But if you're wondering what to pray about, think about every petition of the Lord's Prayer. It tells you. If you, if you don't have a play, if you don't have a prayer life, just think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. He wants to be regarded as holy. He wants to be exalted. Your kingdom come. When, we, when you want to pray about the world, your kingdom come to Israel. Your kingdom come to, to Iran. Your kingdom come to the places of the world in Ukraine and Russia where, where murder is reigning. Your kingdom come in the United States of America where there is so much institutional wickedness at every level being fostered upon our families and our children. Pray for his kingdom to come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is that? It's perfectly done. And to deliver us from the evil one, the evil one in one place in the Sermon on the Mount and the, the evil in another place, to, this, the two times he taught us to pray. For it is his kingdom, it is his power, it is his glory at stake. Don't use just 
a multitude of words. Pray from the heart what's on God's heart and what he taught us to pray. Then it talks about a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Again, when we're so preoccupied with the, the things of this world and the things in this world and our mind is so preoccupied with who won the ball game or who's going to win the ball game or who's, or whatever. Our thoughts are too low and they're too small. Our minds and our hearts and our dreams should be focused upon the living God. Second, or the third thing, do not rash with your mouth. Guard your steps. Do not be rash with your mouth. And then pay your vows. In verses 4 through 7. We're commanded to keep vows. That's not something Solomon just thought of. That's something that is embedded in the Word of God. And again, it's been popular among, among some Christian groups. Maybe, maybe you've read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and you've read Jesus' words. It says, don't, don't vow. That's not what he says. Don't take God's name in vain. He's, he's, what, he's, what he's saying is, He's preaching a sermon against the common practice of the day of the Jewish people who were taking God's name in vain, who were using God as a lucky rabbit's foot. Imagine that. Invoking God as a blessing. He's saying don't swear. What he's saying is don't break God's commandment to take God's name in vain. Don't swear by the temple, or don't, you know, instead of swearing by God's name, they would swear by the temple, or they would swear by this other, other thing. It was like when you're a kid and you, you uh, want to tell a lie, you put your fingers behind your back and cross your fingers, and so it's okay. That's what they were doing. That's not new. That's not a new impulse. Cross fingers has been around for a long time. Such is the human heart. James chapter 5, the same thing. James forbids swearing falsely. He's just repeating what Jesus said in Matthew 5.33. We are called to make vows. Deuteronomy 6. 13 says, you shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall take an oath in his name. It's not even an option. It's a command. It is, again, related directly to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The Apostle Paul, over and over in his epistles, takes vows. In 2 Corinthians 1, this one place, verse 23, he says, I call heaven and earth as witness that I'm telling the truth of the gospel. 
And the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 tells when men swear, they swear by an oath of someone greater. And so we have in our confession of faith a chapter on keeping oaths and vows. And it's for believers. And that was Jay's point at General Assembly, which he made so well. I encourage you to look that up. There are those who want to allow testimony in our church courts without for un, for someone who's an unbeliever. And so it's a well-meaning thought. There may be someone who's seen something that happened, and they want to be um, brought into the church as a witness. But I would I would say that they should be put under an oath as well. You can't go into a human court in the United States of America, I don't think, and without swearing an oath. You can't serve in the military if you are not willing to raise your right hand and swear an oath of allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. And I, I'm assuming, so help me God, is still in that oath. When you join the church, the covenant church, or, or maybe you join the church somewhere else. You swear an oath that I promise to live as a follower of Christ. That I, I, I promise subjection to the government and the discipline of the church. I'm, I'm so encouraged by all the young people getting married. But, but there's a trend among our young people not to get married. For somehow they're afraid of the oath. And the obligation. Marriage depends upon the sacred oath before God and witnesses that I will live before God as husband. We will live before God as husband and wife. Our lives depend on, on men and, and women in the military and the police force who's sworn an oath to uphold our safety according to the Constitution. Our politicians swear an oath for the same. Life is not possible. You can't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court without taking an oath, or you shouldn't. But yet all that, is, we live in a world where all that is being uh, cast aside. And the reason we have come to that place, I'm convinced, is because of the failure of the ministry of the gospel to be true to the oath that we took. Last Sunday night, we had two men take oaths to be ruling elders in this church, and we asked them to take an oath that they would subscribe faithfully to the Word of God and everything in it, and every application of it, as well as our, how we believe the Bible is interpreted through our Westminster standards, and that they would faithfully perform these duties. And we promised as a congregation, those of us who were here, that we would assist and pray for them and come alongside of them for the same purpose. The reason that we're having these terrible consequences throughout our land is the failure to keep our a former member of this congregation, the late Dr. Gary North, who, did, who wrote a lot of things that I didn't agree with, but he wrote one thing that I think ought to be on the 
front shelf of every officer and every faithful member of the, of the Presbyterian Church in America, our, our family churches. He wrote a book called Crossed Fingers. You know, this in this the thesis of the book is this is how liberalism stole the mainline church of the Presbyterian Church, northern and southern branches. Because men took vows in the ministry and didn't believe a word of what they were vowing, but put their fingers behind their back and said it was okay. That's the reason we have chaos in the church. I'm, I'm encouraged that things are getting better. And, uh, we've had several meetings where things are getting better, our own family of churches, but I'm, I'm speaking broadly of this church as a whole. That's the reason we have people saying the most outlandish things, including the Pope himself, the more outlandish and outrageous it becomes. The message from Ecclesiastes is when you make a vow to before God, you must pay it. And if you do not believe that vow or adhere to that vow, God will hold you accountable. Whatever that vow is. When you make a vow, pay it or there will be consequences. We live in a world, a Christian world, that would rather think of their dreams and with their visions and, and their private revelations. Solomon sees the foolishness of that. Righteousness before God is based upon what he does in our hearts to enable us to keep as our hymn says, to keep what we have committed against that day. And what day is that? It's the day of judgment. As we've already seen him talk about. The truth is every single one of us here has broken our vow. All of us. Every vow we've ever taken. You think about all the vows you've taken. And... Um, I'll tell you, and you, you know better than I do how you've broken them, or you should. If you don't, you should. They are, they are a serious matter before a holy God. Rather than daydreaming and thinking of other things, we need to think about what is real and what is true. And that is the Word of God. And everything he says to us. Nothing else matters but what Jesus has done for sinners in fulfilling the word of God. Do you have a relationship with him by faith this morning through what Jesus has done for you on the cross in fulfilling all the scriptures? He is the only one who has fully, perfectly kept his vows. And he did it for sinners. And if you've vowed to be his disciple, if you've taken vows of membership, may God give you grace 
to keep them. If you're a minister of the gospel, like I am, may God give you grace to keep them. If you're an officer in the church of Jesus, if you're a, a member, if you're a married person, may God give you grace to keep your vows. Because at the end of the day, it is only by his grace, only by his sovereign mercy that we can do one thing good. But the good news is, just as surely as he's ordained our salvation, he has ordained our good works. And he is able. He is able. By his grace to help you to keep what you've committed to him. Let us pray. Father, as we read these words, we are convicted of our sin, no doubt like Solomon of old was when you gave them to him to write. Father, how, how often we have treated you lightly and glibly and we have not entered into your presence with fear and reverence. But we have followed too carelessly our own desires and our own dreams rather than submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Forgive us for the many ways that we break our vows, Father, to, to love and cherish our spouse, to, to honor them, and to uh, care for them, Father, all the things that we know that we should do and have vowed to do but do not. Forgive us for all the ways we have failed to keep our, our vows of membership, Father, our vows of, of service that some have called to. Father, we have broken them in so many ways. Father, help us to repent, to be people of absolute integrity. Only your grace through the Holy Spirit can bring these things about. Father, for the vows we've taken as officers in the church, for, for the vows we've taken uh, to perform certain duties that require a vow. Why do they require a vow? Because the only way truly to hold a human being accountable is before you and before the fear of you. So, Father, give us the grace of repentance. Give us new zeal to perform our vows in such a way that brings honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus and to advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. For we pray in his name. Amen.